I remember moments from each of the four days when my four daughters were born. Those are special days. And of course we celebrate birthdays in many families all around the world. Birthdays are important days of celebration. The Church of Jesus Christ had a birthday. It was 2,000 years ago and it was the day of Pentecost. And we're considering the rest of that day in our text this morning. We started looking at Acts chapter two last week. If you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two, and we're going to begin at verse 22. 22 to the end, Acts chapter two, 22 to the end. Now the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. They had spilled out into the streets. They were speaking in foreign languages, languages they didn't know how to speak technically. And a crowd of thousands gathered around them in amazement. Peter stood and he addressed the crowd, explaining what was happening by reminding them of promises that God had made through the prophet Joel. And he quoted some scripture from Joel. The last verse, that he quoted from Joel said this in verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's where we ended last week. But Peter kept preaching. And this evening we're going to see Peter basically proclaim Jesus as Lord in order to create the spirit-filled church. That's really the summary of what happens in the rest of this chapter. Proclaim Jesus as Lord to create the Spirit-filled church. Peter is going to walk the crowd through a series of arguments to persuade them of one major point. Jesus is Lord. That's the first point this evening. Proclaim Jesus as Lord. And we're going to look at verses 22 through 40. So it's really all of the rest of Peter's presentation to the crowd. Proclaim Jesus as Lord. Now, if you would, fast forward with me with your eyes to verse 36, because this is where Peter reaches his main conclusion. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. But to get there in his argument, Peter starts by reminding them of what they already know about Jesus of Nazareth. And so go back to verse 22, and there Peter makes the point that Jesus did mighty works and wonders and signs, and that this was God's way of attesting or certifying that he had sent Jesus and that God was working through him. Next, Peter argues that you Jews crucified and killed him, but that it was all according to the plan of God. Now, if that's confusing to you, I'm gonna come back to that point a little bit later. Peter goes on then to say that God raised him from the dead. In fact, he says, it was impossible for Jesus to stay dead. And he proves it by turning to scripture again. This time he quotes from Psalm 16. That's there in verses 25 through 28. You can see it in your Bible, set apart. Now these words were written down by King David, 
But Peter is arguing that they are really prophecy about the Messiah, the king who would come from David's line and be enthroned by God as king over his people forever. These verses were really about God's promise to resurrect the Messiah. That's Peter's argument. And we testify that Jesus is that resurrected Messiah. We're witnesses of him, Peter says. He goes on in verses 33 through 36. Not only did God raise him from the dead, but he, was, he has exalted him. He's put him on not an earthly throne, but a heavenly throne and given him the Holy Spirit in order to pour out on us just what you're witnessing today. Again, Peter uses scripture to prove it. He quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus had quoted from 110, verse 1 in some of the final days of his life. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now again, David wrote it. But the verses are not about David, says Peter. He's not sitting at God's right hand. Jesus is actually sitting at God's right hand. So what's Peter's conclusion? Verse 36. Know for certain that God has made Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And now, of course, if Peter were a lawyer, he would say, Your Honor, I rest my case. Now let me pause for just a second. Peter is arguing that the man Jesus is God. Only a Messiah sent from God who is fully man could be killed. And only a Messiah sent from God who is himself fully God could be raised from the dead and seated on God's throne to exercise the power of God. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God. Brothers and sisters, our testimony is that Jesus is God. He's not simply a wise teacher. He's not simply a kind miracle worker. He's not like Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad. He is the Lord of the universe. He's the king who created everything and everyone. And he is ruling and reigning now, and he is deserving of everyone's allegiance. This is at the heart of our gospel. Jesus is is God. But Jesus was also a man. He was fully man. And the Jews that Peter spoke to were to blame for his crucifixion, even though it was God's plan. So, of course, we should track back to verse 23. This is one of the clearest verses in the Bible that teaches both God's sovereignty, his control of all of history, and man's responsible for his or her sin. God is sovereign and man is responsible. Those twin truths of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are emphasized actually all throughout this chapter. I unfortunately don't have time to go and show you all the different places where it shows up. Now some of you might struggle to accept that. Everyone who takes the Bible seriously must do that at some point. But let me encourage you 
to trust God's word more than you trust your powers of reasoning and understanding to figure out how they fit together. The writers of the Bible have no trouble affirming both truths over and over and over again, and they don't really take time to explain how they both can be true. But they believe them. Trusting that both of these truths are true has practical implications for us as well. It gives us great comfort to know that God is in control and that he will guide history to the end that he has determined despite the chaos that sin has plunged the world into, especially in our own lives. What comfort it gives us to know that God is sovereign. And it also means that we must make real decisions and take real actions to respond to the desperate situation that we find ourselves in as condemned sinners. We must act. We must respond. The Jews who were listening to Peter that day understood, at least on some fundamental level, that God was a sovereign king and that they would be held responsible for their sin. It was that second point that caused them to be gripped with fear and respond to Peter the way they did. In verse 37, we read that they were cut to the heart, it says. They were convicted of their sin and of the truth that Peter had presented to them about the risen, the ascended Jesus. You see, the Spirit was acting on their hearts to bring conviction. What a gracious thing that the Spirit does. C.H. Spurgeon has said, the knife of the heavenly surgeon never cuts deeper than is absolutely necessary. Enough to cause us to turn in repentance and faith. And so the people ask Peter, brothers, what shall we do? The good news of the gospel is that there was something that they could do. In fact, God provided not just an escape from certain condemnation and destruction for their sin. God was working through Jesus to provide eternal blessings to these people who had crucified the Lord Jesus. Blessings. Peter told them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Most of you possibly walked through that door this evening thinking that you were a Christian. Many of you are Christians. Perhaps you grew up in a church. Perhaps you know parts of the Bible. You believe that Jesus rose again and that he's Lord and King. But you know that all of that has not really made a difference in your life. Could it be that you've not repented of your sin? I don't mean that maybe you prayed a prayer telling God that you're sorry simply, or that you've even felt bad, perhaps even shed tears about the ways that you've rebelled against God, his rule in your life. You may have even been baptized. But baptism in water is meant to represent baptism in the spirit that's already taken place. It's meant to follow repentance and faith. Perhaps you've never really begun to hate your sin. 
You've never sworn your allegiance to live for Jesus and follow through on it. Don't let pride or some past experiences that you're pinning your hopes on prevent you from truly turning to Christ right now. Repent. Turn to Christ in faith. Begin to live for him. As long as you have breath, it's not too late. We can learn about what it means to truly turn to Christ in repentance and faith if really if we just consider the phrase that Peter used describing the need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. One theologian has said what that means is by his authority, acknowledging his claims, subscribing to his doctrine, engaging in his service, and relying on his merits. Don't deceive yourself about what it means to be a Christian. Your eternal destiny is at stake. Many in the crowd that day responded to Peter's argument and invitation. In verses 41 through 47, we see the church is created. It was the birthday of the church after all. And then it was sustained by the spirit that Christ had poured out on them. And we should also live as the spirit-filled church. I think that's the instruction for us today, and that's our second point this evening. Live as the Spirit-filled church, verses 40 through 47. There's so much here that I want to consider, but I just want to point out three aspects of their life together as new followers of Jesus Christ. One, their devotion together. Two, their joyful generosity. And three, their evangelistic lives. Verse 42 summarizes what these new disciples of Jesus were devoted to. It was first the apostles' teaching. They sat at the apostles' feet to learn the teachings of Jesus. And we still devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, just like they did. How? We become students of God's word. God's word, what the apostles wrote down and the ways that they interpreted the Old Testament scriptures as well. We sit at the feet of the apostles just as much as the early church did when we daily open up God's word and when we hold the preaching of God's word in high regard. Next, they were devoted to the fellowship. Now this doesn't just mean that they spent time in warm, friendly conversation with really great snacks. <laughs> Fellowship involves something much, much deeper, a deeper commitment. D.A. Carson has described fellowship as a self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. Self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. It's something that costs you something, time or energy or attention, maybe even money. Fellowship is shaped by a common vision for what life, all of life, under Christ's lordship should be like. It's participation in a life together, committed to being disciples of Christ. Lastly, they were devoted to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. I'm going to lump those together. I'm inclined to think that the Lord's Supper is hinted at here at least since what seems like simple meals together are mentioned again down in verse 46. And if it's the Lord's Supper, it's evidence that they immediately began to obey Jesus's command to practice it regularly, to do it in remembrance of him. 
And they continued, of course, to be people of prayer, just as the 120 disciples in the upper room had prayerfully waited on the Spirit before the day of Pentecost. Are you devoted to these things? If not, what are you devoted to? The second thing that you might notice here in this description is their joyful generosity. It stands out, doesn't it? They sold their possessions to provide for anyone who had need. It says they had all things in common, which seems to mean that they shared among one another very freely. They ate their food together, it says down a few more verses. And if it was with glad and generous hearts, like Luke tells us, then they must have shared their food. It's not that these new disciples gave everything to the church. This isn't some early form of communism. Why is it that they were so generous though? It's because they recognized how much Christ had given them in forgiving their sins and pouring out the spirit on them and promising them eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. Listen, if I told you that you had suddenly inherited billions of dollars, what you own right now would suddenly suddenly become of much less value to you. <laughs> you would freely give of what you have knowing that your inheritance would keep you secure. Brothers and sisters, we have that valuable inheritance. And so we too can be joyfully generous just like they were. It's only when we recognize how the extravagant blessings that God has given us that have been given us in Christ that we can give with joy and generosity. Does joyfully generous describe you? I know it does for many of you. I'm so humbled by your care and love for each other. Sometimes I hear about it after the fact. I don't know who gave someone help, but I do know that it's happening. And I wanna tell you that it blesses and encourages me so much. I know that the Spirit's in work at work in so many of you. You know, it's, it's even hard for us to give away all of the benevolence fund that we have because you all take care of each other so well. But I too notice in this packet passage that they let each other know their needs. So don't let pride keep you from sharing your needs with us. Lastly, we see evidence of their evangelistic lives. It says they had favor with all the people in verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They must not have depended on the apostles alone to share the good news of the gospel. They began to share it themselves with others around them. A spirit-filled church will become an evangelizing church, necessarily. Who are you praying for to come to Christ? And are you praying for the courage to share the gospel with them? God loves to answer those kinds of prayers. The spirit-filled culture of this group of disciples is what we describe in our church as membership. That's what we mean by membership, all these things that are described. That's why we ask people to become a member of our church rather than just attend church. We summarize our commitments to one another in our church covenant, scripture, prayer, and ordinances, watching over each other's lives in tangible ways, sharing our faith. It's all designed to fit under that idea of membership. 
Wouldn't you want to be a part of a community like this? Wouldn't you have loved to be there? Don't you want to be a church like that? I want to be a people like this. I know that. This was a unique time in history. It was a unique moment. It was the birthday of the church. But we can taste some of what they tasted. Christ is still giving his spirit to his church. And as long as we continue to believe in and proclaim that Jesus is Lord and Christ, as long as we keep repenting of our sin and seeking the kingdom, we can know at least some of what they knew. Because we know and love King Jesus too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you raised up Jesus, that you've seated him on the throne and that he poured out the spirit and he is still pouring out the spirit. Lord, we pray that you would fill us afresh, that we might live like this and that we might proclaim your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.